Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. Welcome to the Loma Linda University Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you will be blessed by the message. Good morning, church family. So good to see all of you here today. You know, when I was a little boy, we'd just come to America. For one reason or another, my mother really wanted to have my picture taken professionally. The American camera. And there I was, standing with my favorite toy. Not just a toy, but a football. I loved that football. I loved how it felt. I loved everything about football. Now, how could this European be saying that? We understand that a football is soccer. Who would come up with such a name for a game that you throw a ball and you run with it when it's about feet? Football. That's why America has so many problems. You can't get that one. <laughs> well, anyways, those of you who are here see the picture, and you must realize that I love football based on what this picture is portraying. I love football today. When we get into staff meeting, we have incredible banter. Randy, we still talk about how the Cowboys stink. We talk about how the other teams are trading players. Miguel chimes in, Joel, Joey. I mean, it is fun. So you would think. But the truth is that's a big fat lie. Because the only thing that's true is that that day we were doing the photos was the day that the photographer tried to help me feel comfortable in her space. She knew I was a little boy and she saw that I was getting scared and she gave me a football to hold and I held it as I was holding my mother for comfort. I don't like football. I don't like football today. I don't watch Monday night football, Thursday night, Sunday night. I've gone to a game or two. I play it every once in a while. But I love basketball. I love soccer. Like every good European should. (laughs) Excited for the World Cup in November? Anyone? Okay. Some lies don't really hold much water. Some lies, no harm, no foul, wasn't a big deal. But some lies can be devastating friend of mine shared with me that his son, when he was two years old, he found out it wasn't his son. Mommy was spending time with someone while he was away. That was a devastating blow to his relationship and his marriage that was irreparable. Some lies are devastating, detrimental, pernicious at a core that it deceives and destroys everything you've known. And so, this morning, I challenge you to realize 
that our beliefs, our understandings of things shape us at a core foundational level that if you don't get them right from the beginning, it will cause detrimental effects for your future. James Clear in his wildly popular and very practical book, Atomic Habits, talks about the idea that our habits are shaped by our beliefs. And our habits form who we become. If you want to change who you want to be, change the core, your beliefs. Now, if some of you are, hey, listen, pastor, I don't know about this. You're, you're saying a lot. You're saying a lot here. I don't know if I believe that. Let me tell you, have you ever heard of a placebo effect? You ever hear of that? It's the idea you take a certain medication, you believe it's really the medication, you believe this is a cure-all drug, and you take it and you're like, man, I'm feeling the effects. And you find out from the doctor after the fact you've experienced these healing remedies, there was nothing in the pill but sugar. Now, there is another type of placebo, if you want to say, the arch enemy, the double side of the coin of the evil twin called the nocebo effect. The nocebo effect, if you're wondering what in the world is that, listen to this. This was in the psychology section of the BBC News in an article entitled The Contagious Thought That Could Kill You. By David Robson, he writes, we have, one, we have long known that expectations of a malady can be as dangerous as a virus. In the same way that voodoo shamans could harm their victims through the power of suggestion, priming someone to think they are ill can often produce the actual symptoms of a disease. Vomiting, dizziness, headaches, even death could be triggered through belief alone. It's called the nocebo effect. But it's now becoming clear just how easily those dangerous beliefs can spread through gossip and hearsay with potent effect. What people say in your environment can shape who you become. Spiritually speaking, if you believe false beliefs, lies, untrue stories about yourself and God and others, it can have detrimental effects on you, your family, your friends, and even the church. Now, some of you are wondering, what are we going to do these next three weeks? Well, the next two weeks, we're going to look at two of those spiritual lies. And we're going to break it apart. And we're going to understand the effect that has on us. But this week, in this series, Myths, the Lies that Define Us, I want to look at a foundation. And build such a foundation with you today. That we understand the lies that are around us in this world. And how we can break them. And I want to take you there by first helping you understand why God wants us to do that. Because as one New Testament theologian says, God's will is for believers to think rightly. Repairing lies, untrue stories, and misguided false beliefs is at the heart of the gospel. It is at the heart of the gospel to correct what doesn't lead to truth 
and faithfulness and obedience. And so this morning, we want to take a look at that. But you might be asking, well, pastor, how do I, how do, I do that as a believer when the world is primed to teach me its way of thinking, doing, and believing? Well, I'm so glad you asked. Good. Because that's where we're going to find this out in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 to 2. Take out your Bibles digitally or look at the screen. If you're a real believer, you brought a hard copy Bible with you. That's just me. Take a look at this, what it says here. Romans, Paul writing this. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. I love the book by Joyce Myers, The Battlefield of the Mind. The very title of it just captures the idea of where we're going. You see, as believers, if we do not understand that the battle we fight in this cosmic understanding of the great controversy is here, if you're anticipating someone to come with guns and beat your door down and persecute you like in the Middle Ages, you're forgetting the greatest battlefield that's going on. And it takes place every day here. Paul, writing to a New Testament young church there in Rome. Paul had never been to Rome yet at that time. That would happen later in his life. But at this time, he heard the reports. He heard from people that were over there. He heard from Christians that had come over to where he was. He understood what Rome was about already on his own. He was a Roman citizen. But he also knew the opulence. He knew that this was the epicenter of the then known world in fashion, economy, literature, sport, academia, medicine, and in every way, it was the place to be. If you've ever been to Rome today, it's still beautiful. And you see the remnants of the incredible Colosseum, a place where potentially a million or several hundred, many hundreds of thousands of people lived at that time. But there was a small group of only several hundred young Christians who had heard about the message of Jesus. And they were being encouraged by Paul's letter. Now it's interesting. These young Christians would never know what would come only less than a decade away. Because at the writing of this, there in 57 AD, Nero was only 20 years old. It was just three years before that that he became emperor of Rome. At 17, when his mother killed his father, Emperor Claudius. Very interesting drama you take place in the, the Roman Empire, huh? And there you find out much more about Nero. Because seven years later, what does he do to Rome? Burns it to the ground almost. And blames who? The Christians. Paul had no idea that this letter arriving before the greatest persecution they would experience 
would build up and set a foundation for this young church upon which they could build their faith and their missional life with those who were drastically different than them. You see, God always sets you up. Even in times when you wonder, God, why would this bad thing be occurring to me right now? Lord, why is this tragedy occurring? Why did I go through this? Why did I date him? Well, so you could figure out later on what you don't like. The guy you shouldn't be with. The woman you shouldn't be marrying. God, why did I fail that test? Hey, you need to learn, grow, and build. And I'm going to bring something back in your life that will bless you. Here, God was giving this young church a message that would sustain them and grow them for what would come only less than a decade away. What was that message? Well, chapters 1 through 11 of Romans is this glorious theology, this doctrine about the beauty and righteousness of God in Jesus. The Messiah that was promised came. His name was Jesus. He died on the cross. It is by faith you have been saved. And therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1. And he continues the gospel. And the mercies and goodness of God are captured to these people. Wow. But you see the way that Paul writes, it's so incredible. Because he always gives people this grandiose theology but he never leaves theology in the head. He always makes it practical. And so he says, now you've heard this beautiful theology, now I want you to understand how to practically live that out. And that is the crux of where chapter 12, 1 and 2 now begin. It is the section that begins the practical idea of what the theology looks like amongst the believers. Here you see that now, as one theologian, N.T. Wright, says, the gospel is not complete in Paul's mind until the fellowship of faith embodies and matches the righteousness of faith. Our young adult community, Praxis, had this tagline for several years and still does now, when theory, where theory becomes practice. Because as believers, what good is your theology if it doesn't make an impact in how you live and experience God's goodness and the community. And so here Paul begins his section on teaching the people how they are to follow this practical theology. And he begins with this word, therefore. Therefore. It's interesting. Therefore means listen to everything I told you before and now listen to what I'm about to tell you next. Therefore, therefore, because of all that I just explained to you, keep that in mind because you're going to need that for what's coming. When my wife gives me a list, it's purposeful. Because she knows if she tells it to me, I'm usually going to get the last two things maybe at the end and I'll forget what I had to do in the beginning. Well, Paul reminds them, he says, therefore, I need you to know everything I told you in the past here in these first 11 chapters because what's to come is hinging upon the therefore. How you're going to live is hinging upon you understanding the goodness and righteousness of God. Therefore. As our beloved Azure Hills pastor who was here formerly and New Testament theologian John Brunt writes in his 
Bible Amplified Commentary. He says, Paul is saying here, in the light of Romans 1 through 11, therefore, comma, quote, in the light of God's mercy and grace, here is the appropriate way you are to respond in your life, end quote. He is trying to show us the life that follows from a true understanding of God's grace. The logical, reasonable outgrowth of accepting God's grace for all is a holistic response of trust for God and love for others, which is your offering of a living sacrifice. Paul now continues from his therefore, and he says, offer yourselves as a living sacrifice. In the Greek, this word offer is written in the orist tense. It's a unique tense which indicates not something that's done just once and never again. I made a decision to follow Jesus. I never have to do it again. I said, I love you once, Elena. Do I need to repeat it every day? That wouldn't go over well if I told her that. But here, Paul writes this in the Oris tense, indicating there is going to need to be a regularity to this offering. He then goes to say now a very strange combination of words. He says, a living sacrifice. Do you understand how weird that would be for the Romans? They lived in a world of sacrifice regularly, but it was a sacrifice of dead things, a dead animal. A dead offering of food. A dead killing of this animal for the Jews and they would put it on the altar and it would burn up and it would be a beautiful sacrifice. But for the New Testament church, Paul establishes this understanding that sacrifice is no longer dead. God doesn't need your dead sacrifice anymore. It's an allusion really to almost various stories of the Old Testament. For instance, check out the story in 1 Samuel 15. There Saul, King Saul, follows God's command only partially. Choosing to do it his own way. Doesn't conquer all the people, saves the king and saves all the animals. And in his proud gesture, sacrifices hundreds and thousands of these cattle from the enemy nation, and it's burning in this cloud. It was gross. Imagine, thousands of animals. And you know what? God said it's gross too. Because when Samuel came to Saul, he looked at him and he says, God says he doesn't need your sacrifice. He needs your obedience. Imagine God looking at you and saying, you know what? I don't need you paying off the church debt and loan. Which would be nice. Which would be nice. I need you to be faithful to your wife. I need you to faithfully walk with me at work and not cheat people. I need you, and the list goes on and on and on. God doesn't need you to do great and wondrous, mighty external things that makes people say, wow, isn't she spiritual? Isn't he religious? Wow. 
The Christian sacrifice is a living one. Secondly, Christian sacrifice is done everywhere and at all times. Christian worship does not happen at one time in one place for one hour on one day. Ooh, pastor, good to see you. And then you walk out and never realize that your sacrifice follows you everywhere at all times with everyone. You live for Christ as a sacrifice of worship everywhere. Everywhere and at all times. We cannot shut off the Christian portion of our life. It isn't something you can place in a box and pull out only when it's convenient. Well, I'll be Christian right now because I'm around the Christian folk. But when I'm over here, well, I've got other things. I've got other priorities. I've got other concerns. And that can just step aside. Our worship is not something that's part of us. Because Christian worship, thirdly, is our whole life. I love how Eugene Peterson, the New Testament theologian, puts this as he looked at translating this in a new and fresh way. Look at it with me. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 in the Message Bible. So here, here's what I want you to do. God helping you. Take your everyday ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Take what you do in your everyday life as your expression of sacrifice to Jesus. When you step into that classroom with those kids as a teacher, that is your temple and worship place. Because you're going to be praying to God a lot for those two-year-olds. But also as you step into the OR, as you step into your unit as a nurse with your colleagues and your team, that is your place of worship in your space of business. When you're working with people, helping them get more money, building their work and economy, that is your place of business but also of worship. As you make a mind shift, God, this is my sacrifice to you that I might be a blessing to God's people. Worship must expand in our minds and go beyond the choral singing, us participating for one hour. It must move into our everyday world. The moment you take care of a crying child, mom, dad, the moment you step into loving your elderly parents, the moment you step into caring for your adult kids, the moment you walk into your workplace, wherever God has called you, this is your worship. But now the linchpin begins. Because if we want to stand here before God and say, Lord, this is my sacrifice to you. God, I want to lead people to know you, to love you, to worship you, to serve you with my life. Jesus, when people look at me when I die, I pray they see a beautiful thing that's happened. Well, if you want that reality, there's got to be a but. But, Romans 12.2 changes the story for you. Because you see, everything in verse 1 is subordinate to verse 2. If you want verse 1 reality, a life that is full of God's kingdom, that is a sacrifice to the world and to the Lord, and that is a blessing to those around you, then you got to live into the, the reality of chapter 12, verse 2. 
Look at this. Look at this with me, okay? When something is a linchpin idea, it means if you don't do this, there will be paramount and perilous consequence. Let me tell you a story for a moment. I was rock climbing in Colorado. I shouldn't say rock climbing. I was learning how to rock climb. I'm not that good. There I was working at Camp Myvedon, and I was the basketball instructor and counselor, and I wanted to learn how to rock climb. And so I found my buddy Brent, who was uh, ahead of me, and he was really a great guy. He said, hey, listen, I know you're on the off hours right now. Why don't you come learn how to rock climb with me? Oh, that's great. I'd love to. And then I can help, and this would be so good. Maybe I could do this, you know, super. Well, he taught me something called the buddy system, the buddy check. And I was about to rappel off a face of a mountain of some hundreds of feet. And I, I was going to go. And he said, whoa, Philip, buddy check, bro. Okay, buddy. Buddy check. Let's check out everything that's going on here. Okay, well, look, I clipped in here. I've got the rope. I tied it well. He said, Philip, are you crazy? Why? What's wrong? What Do you know where you clipped in? Where? You clipped into the plastic, flimsy piece on the side of your harness. If you would have jumped off, you would have died. Ooh, thanks, buddy. Buddy check. But you see, everything hinged upon me understanding I need to clip into the right place. If you don't understand what happens now in verse 2, you will fall to a spiritual perilous demise. Because here Paul establishes this imperfect understanding for the one who wants to understand it. Read it with me one more time here. Romans chapter 12 and verse 2. Do not, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. You know, by nature, we are actually conformists. Some of you are like, hey, 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 I'm a free, independent thinker, buddy. I've gotten here by thinking of my own and walking my own line. I don't conform to what anybody says. I am an independent thinker. Okay, sure. I think you maybe have some work to do with uh, Solomon Arsh, the famed pioneer of social behavioral psychology. In one of his famous experiments called the line experiment there in the 1950s he took several hundred college students and he grouped them into groups of 12 but what he would do is he would get 11 of them and he would have them talk with him and he would make them actors as part of the experiment they were to follow his exact command but one of the 12 wouldn't be in on the whole thing they were actually the subject of study he would give them three lines of varying lengths and he would ask them to pick which one is the longest line. It was obvious which one was longest. He always made it that way. And there would be two that would be of similar length. But what he told the actors was, choose the second longest one when I ask you which one is the longest line. And so the judge would be up there. He would ask which one is the longest and they would all go up and they would say B. B, 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 and the last person, the subject of the whole study, would hear what everyone said out loud. 
And there they're looking at the three lines and he's like, are these people complete idiots or am I just not getting it? They're all college students. They're brilliant. What? Okay, I guess it's B. Every single time the person that was the subject of the study would listen to the responses of the first 11 telling the wrong answer and would go along with the wrong answer. When he switched the study, when he showed, well, what if I gave the right answer every time? The person would pick the right answer. What he found was an interesting reality, and that is in social human behavior, people are bent to influence and conformity because of the pressure of the masses. Paul here looks and he says, do not conform though. Why? Do not conform because of this world. If you assume that this world has your best interest in mind, that this world has the values of Christ's kingdom, will shepherd your children to love and worship Jesus, will lead you towards a life of faithfulness in the walk of discipleship, you have something coming. Because when Paul uses this term world, aeoion in Greek, it means this age. And if we know anything about this age, according to Scripture, 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, Satan, the God of this age, has blinded people so they cannot see the gospel. This age, the mindset of this age is not God's mindset. It is the mindset of Satan himself, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians. He goes on later to say that it is the mindset of this age that leads people to evil. This is a hard teaching. It's a hard reality. But the beauty is that Paul then also writes in 1 Galatians, and Galatians 1, 4, that this age also, while it be evil, is redeemed by Christ. Jesus can redeem you and me. The new believing method of, of reality can reorient our life when we want to walk in the light of the gospel. When you want to not conform to this world, you want to actually conform to the kingdom, Christ provides a way out. The problem is though, as believers, we still have to live in this age. You don't get a way out. You don't get to go live in the desert by yourself in some way. And even there, <laughs> the stories of the desert fathers, thinking that if they could run from the allures and temptations of the world, they would have no sin. There they found the reality that their mind was just as sinister and evil as the halls of a brothel. You cannot run from this world because you live in this world. And so then how are we to live in this world? How am I to live in this existence, in this sort of a space? How? I'll tell you. Against the mold. Paul writes that there is a pattern that the world has created that every one of us is supposed to fall into. I don't know if you like a Tesla. Maybe you like a Ford Maybe you like a GM or you like your 1992 Pontiac. Good for you. 
but every single one of those cars is built in a production line factory. There's a mold created to create a lot of the same thing over and over. Henry Ford designed it that way and made a lot of money doing it. And this world also has a mold that it wants you to fit into. A mold that does not lead you to a deeper understanding of the gospel or loving your family better. But the opposite. And how do you relate to this mold? What do you do? How am I supposed to do anything about this mold? I don't have the mold. It's not on me. It's not like a mold, that kind of parasite. I'm saying it's a mold that you're shaped into. And some of you are, no, 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 I am not shaped into the conforming vision and mindset of the world. I am not. I'm a believer. I'm a longtime Adventist member. I'm fifth generation. Do you know I've paid for these seats that I'm sitting on? Do you understand? Sure, that's fine. The problem is that Paul says here, do not conform to the pattern of this world, as some translations say, any longer. When he says any longer, he's indicating that means it's not a matter of if. But it's how long and how bad your conforming looks like in your life. And some of you are wondering, well, what do I do? What do I do? I'll tell you what to do. Stop being a chameleon. A chameleon was designed in, in God's creation and perfect beauty. That when they are in a moment of struggle and despair and hardship, they blend into the background. You know, we have a lot of lizards that go around our house. And sometimes they'll stop all of a sudden when we come nearby. Ooh. I can see you, buddy. I can see you. Uh, you don't have to stop. You should keep going. Otherwise, the cat will get you. Lizards are different from chameleons. Because lizards don't blend in. Chameleons were made that way because God designed them to be that way. God designed them to blend in to look like the branch to look like the tree leaf, to look like their surroundings, the ground. And that was how they were made to be. But it isn't that way for us. When it comes to this world, we weren't called to blend in. We weren't called to live a life in which you look exactly like the rest. When Jesus said, I need you to be the light of the world. When Jesus said, I need you to be the salt, he was indicating something of the opposite direction. That the world is dark and the world is flavorless. Indicating that the majority are not walking in a way in which it brings freedom to people. The light and hope. It was indicating that there was the majority are not walking in a way that gives flavor to the world around them. It's bland. Tastes just like the same. You know, I loved the rebels in high school ministry. They'd have those spiky hair that would be up 12 inches. They'd wear clothes that were fitting for five people to fit into. But they said, I'm not conforming. I don't care what everyone else around me looks like. I am not conforming. They were my favorite. Yes, they were a handful. And if there were all of them like that, it would be tough. But they said, I'm not going to be like the rest. When will you likewise wake up to the reality? It's not a matter of if you've conformed, but how much. And when are you going to say, God, I'm done with it. 
I'm no longer walking down that path. You can conform in various ways. I want to ask you to think about your life. Think about your everyday hours of your life. Is there but maybe one hour that you give to the kingdom of God in your life? An hour that you meditate on scripture, that you serve people selflessly, that you give of your time as an act of worship to God where your mindset is on him. Is there but one hour maybe in your day? Or let's think about it maybe more broadly, this idea of conforming. How might you do it? You might do it actively, you might do it passively, and you might do it deceptively. The conforming actively looks like, hey, I'm giving in to this world's conforming. I'm buying it. I'm going to smell like it. I'm going to look like it. I'm going to marry it. I'm going to taste it. I'm going to see it. I'm going to go for it. I don't care about the Christian values of God's kingdom and his heart for me. I want what the world has. Now, it isn't always as abrupt like that. But it's an active engagement with it. But maybe you're more so the person who's experienced the passive conformity. The passive conformity is very sinister and it's very subtle. It's a conformity of accommodation. Accommodating for people. Hey, you know, I'm in this situation. I, I understand. It'll be fine. It's okay. It's not a big deal. We'll, you know. And then you do that once and twice and three times. You know, I'm, honey, I'm tired. I'm tired. I'm tired. I'm tired. I'm not going to church today. Next week, I'm still tired. I'm still tired of that pastor up there, Philip. I'm still tired. And then that pattern of continuing that conformity, the subtlety of it changes you. Changes you in such a way that I dare not say you lose your salvation because that's above my pay grade. But I will say it changes you in such a way that your Christian effectiveness is altered. You no longer make the impact of, of Jesus' kingdom on the world like you could have. You just don't. But maybe you've conformed actually and you're the one that's deceived thinking that you have not conformed. Because Jesus looked at the Jewish leaders and he said, you Pharisees, mm -mm -mm. you're a bunch of brood of vipers. You are deceived. Some of you in your spirituality are so heavenly minded that you are earthly no good. Because your devotion to Jesus should change the way that people experience you. They should sense and feel and know the love of God when you're around them. They should know the peace of Jesus when you're in their presence. Your words, your actions, they build up and they change people. But if your holiness, your religiousness does the opposite, I dare say that maybe you are not conforming to Christ, but conforming to the patterns of your own religion and your own world. This doesn't mean that truth no longer exists. Please do not think that that's what I'm saying. But truth, when grounded in Christ, always beckoned the sinner to his redemption and his grace and his mercy. And so, here you are. Here I am, wondering, God, well, how do I then get transformed? How do I change? I'll tell you. It isn't by working harder. 
It isn't by praying more hours. It isn't by trying to sit there in front of the Bible and memorize the entire thing. While that would be good for you. The text here says, be transformed. If you could understand Greek, you would think of it this way. Let God do the work he needs to do in you. It's written in a passive tense. It doesn't mean you can muster anything up more. I'm going to make it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to be holier. I'll be here more often. I'll pay more tithe. I'll serve in every Sabbath school I can. I'll do it. God doesn't need your external sacrifices if your heart is far from him. If the transformation hasn't occurred by his spirit and by him, the change will last as long as your New Year's resolution to February 1. The text here says, be transformed by the renewal of your mind, a mental conformity to the truth of God. It is by Jesus doing a mighty work in you that only he can do for you. If you think about it in this way, some of you wonder, God, how can I know your will, Lord Jesus? The text here says that you will know the perfect will of God if he transforms your mind. I have young adults all the time telling me, Pastor, I just don't know what the will of God is in my life. I'm really seeking it out. And I would challenge every single one of you. Do you first know the simple will of God? The simple will of God is the basic, everyday, common grace will of God that's revealed to every one of us that we all have access to. Have you started here? Have you allowed your time with the creator and built an intimacy with him? I'm not going to tell you what that looks like. I'm not going to force feed you. I'm not going to say anything like that. But I will tell you that it's very clear what Paul says again and again. You have to behold to become changed. When Moses saw the people bitten by the serpents after their complaining, they wanted to conform. We need to go back to Egypt. He said, behold the lamb of God. And he didn't say it like that. He said, look to the serpent. Look to Jesus. I want to leave you with two realities I want to challenge you with today. Number one, don't lose hope. Keep looking to Jesus. Keep looking to Jesus. Don't think you're too far gone and don't think you're too holy to be any good. Keep looking to Jesus. Philippians 1.6, one of my favorite verses. He who began a good work in you will complete it. He will complete it. 2 Corinthians 3.18, and we all with unveiled eyes beholding the glory of God are being transformed into his same image. It's by beholding Jesus, looking at him with your time, your work, your worship, your way of sacrifice, that everything changes. The British evangelist Alan Redpath said this, Give up the struggle and the fight. Relax in the omnipotence of the Lord Jesus. Look up into his lovely face and you will behold him. He will transform you into his likeness. You do the beholding. He does the transforming. There's no shortcut to holiness. 
But the second thing I want to encourage you with is this. Do not be afraid to be peculiar, different, odd, or bold when it comes to your Christian beliefs. No longer should this phrase live in your mind. I just don't want to look weird. I just don't want to feel like I'm pushing them away when I say no. When I was a young man in high school, a buddy of mine gave me my first beer. I was at his house. It was a sleepover. And there I just said, you know, why not? Even put Skittles in it to make it taste better. And I drank it. And I said, bro, I'm not even going to finish this. I don't really like it. And then that question popped up again and again throughout my college years. And even in other circles that I didn't think it would be there. And I gave in. I gave in. And every once in a while I'd drink a little bit. Never really to get wildly drunk or anything. But, you know, I was around those people. They're my friends. Why not? But I got to a point where I had to say, listen, why am I accommodating for everyone else? I don't even like this stuff. I'm done. I'm done. I could care less. If I look weird or I look strange, I'm not going to do it anymore. Jesus, please help. And so there I was in college and I made the decision. I said, I'm, I don't need this in my life. I wasn't the guy who was in the wild parties or anything, but it was just those subtle moments around people there at dinner. Hey, would you like a glass? Sure, well, okay, I'll try it. But every one of us has to realize the passive influence. I don't know what it is in your life. That was for me. For you, it might be something else. For you, it might be different. For you, it might be different. And it is for each one of us. But Jesus speaks into each one of our hearts through the Apostle Paul here today and in this moment. And he asks you, please, please, please. The text begins in verse 1. I plead with you. Don't conform to the world. Pleading was a form of begging them. Literally, if Paul would have been sitting with them at the letter there when he gets to 12 verse 1, he'd stand up from the podium and he'd get on his knees. Please, I beg you guys. I beg you guys. Offer your life as a living sacrifice. Please, don't conform to this world. Because he knew the beauty and hope of Jesus in his life. He knew the freedom he found. He understood the glorious vision. And he wanted them to have it too. Friends, I want you to have that too today. I want you to behold the Lamb of God, as John the Baptist said, that takes away the sin of the world. And so I look to you today as John the Baptist looked at Jesus and claimed those words. My friends... Behold the Lamb of God, which will transform your life, transform the lies you've been believing about yourself in this life and the world and the, and the people around you. Behold the Lamb of God. Find more podcasts videos, church events, and how you can support the Loma Linda University Church at lluc.org.